First off, major trigger warning because this case includes sexual violence and the murder of very young children. So, yeah, it's fucking rough. It's a so, gold episode. Hold on to your butts. Now, as you're listening to this episode or watching this video, think about the fact that at any given moment, there are countless predators lurking among us. They could be our neighbors, co-workers, or even family members. In the late 1980s, Tokyo was terrorized by one such predator, Satomu Miyazaki. He was a man with a history of stalking, and he ultimately became a serial killer, taking the lives of four young girls. In this video, we'll delve into the twisted mind of Tsutomu Miyazaki and explore the chilling details of his crime. Welcome back to Bros and Murder, a podcast where we cover true code cases of color and play music from artists you probably never heard of. I'm Andre, joined once again by Kwaters. <laughs> <laughs> and this week we are covering a Japanese serial killer, stalker, warrior, and all around. All around creep. All all around, like a textbook serial killer. <laughs> Like the most like stereotypical serial killer. Yeah, who had Tokyo in the 80s on lockdown. So, Kelly, I thought that was fucked up rabbit hole. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of this, but as you said, Satomu Miyazaki falls under the serial killer stereotype 2AT. And this isn't any kind of like projecting onto people overall, but he did have a physical deformity that affected his hands so they were very long his fingers looked very very long like they looked like a stereotypical like nosferatu or like vampire hands mm -hmm. from like some kind of creature feature like, like, like a strigoi or some shit yeah so they were very long and angular and the wrist joint was fused so that he couldn't actually like move his hands normally like independently of his um forearm because of that he suffered a lot of ostracization in his youth um he was very intelligent and originally planning to to be an English teacher, but later he became a printer's assistant, which that choice ended up playing a role in his apprehension later. Um, another name for him was the Otaku Murderer, which may be a word that some people are familiar with. I know when I was in college, we had a hallway of dorms called Otaku. Yeah, it was in the, the freshman dorms, but like it wasn't just freshmen. It was a hallway of all these girls who were like really into anime and things like that. So like Miyazaki had a strong fascination with cartoons as well as like horror movies and um, unfortunately child pornography. Yes. Um, and the term Otaku quite literally means to have an obsessive of fascination with so it's not like we associate it here with like people who are really into like japanese anime. stuff like anime yeah. manga cartoons but it, it it can be a fascination of like any kind um which is normally harmless but these murders gave the term a negative connotation at least over there in japan Miyazaki's first victim was Mari Kono, a four-year-old girl who was abducted from a park near her home on August 22nd, 1988. Miyazaki took her to a secluded area where he sexually assaulted her, strangled her, and then cut off her hands and feet. After that, he took pictures of her body and left it in a remote location. Uh, we will be distributing vomit bags with this podcast. If you check under your seats, there yeah. are custom bros and murder puke buckets. You're welcome. Now, Mizuzaki's second victim was Masami Yoshizawa, a seven-year-old girl 
who was abducted from a shopping center of Chiyoji. Tokyo on October 3rd, 1988. Miyazaki subjected her to a similar act of sexual abuse and torture before killing her and again taking pictures of her body. The third victim was Erika Namba. She was abducted on December 6th, 1988. Erika was a four-year-old girl who was playing outside of her home when Miyazaki abducted her and her body was found in a cooler in his apartment. The fourth and final victim was Ayaka Mina Ayaka Namato. Thank you. She was abducted on July 23rd, 1989. She was a five-year-old girl who was playing in a park when Miyazaki kidnapped her. Her body was later found in a nearby wooded area. So all of his victims, mind you, were clearly young girls who were playing or walking home from school. Their innocence and vulnerability made them easy targets for him. And he also had a history of stalking and voyeurism. So I think that's why the picture may have also played into the fact of it well, like I mean, it's, souvenir it, yeah that's what i was gonna say like he can yeah. relive his crimes his, later over and over again yeah. okay because i wasn't able to join the call earlier let's knock out some of the pronunciations to see how andre and kelly did <laughs> okay miyazaki tsutomu tokyo otaku kono mari saitama Yoshizawa Masoni Hachioji Namba Erika Nomoto Ayako. I'm sure they did fine. So a couple of cultural things I'll point out before I go into my section. So as Kelly mentioned, otaku is a term that's used to describe someone with an unhealthy level of obsession with something. In the West, this has kind of been folded into like geek and nerd culture to the point that people self-identify with it. Like, oh yeah, I'm otaku, I love anime, I love video games, whatever it may be. In Japan, there are people who self-identify with it, but it's almost like a universally negative connotation. Being an otaku is not a good thing, um, especially in the general society. It's kind of similar to two concepts, hikikomori and meets. Hikikomori is uh, people who self-isolate, so they lock themselves in their room or their apartment, and they don't come out except for the bare necessities. So they will, you know, go to the gas station to get food. But other than that, they're in their room watching anime, playing video games, reading light novels. And then NEETS. A NEET is an acronym. It stands for Not in Education, Employment, or Training. Um, and it's people who kind of just rely on their families and don't pursue their lives anymore. So that's kind of uh, when people call him the otaku killer. That is what they're making reference to. Uh, that sort of individual. Uh, another thing, so in Japan, especially Tokyo, children at a very early age are expected to have a high level of agency. So they begin commuting to school alone um, as early as like first grade. So they walk and navigate the Tokyo train systems all alone as, as early as first grade. And it is expected that, you know, the community protects these children and encourages them to become independent uh, and to take these journeys. So what Miyazaki did was so much more violating to the entire community because it it's against these people who are supposed to be learning to be alone and navigate alone. And he is someone who preyed on that cultural norm uh, and violated that, that community pact to protect these children. So after being arrested, Miyazaki confessed to the crimes a move that would later be used as evidence of his diminished mental capacity when his defense attempted an insanity plea. They never claimed he didn't do the actions, but they did claim that he was not uh, psychologically stable enough to stand trial. The plea was unsuccessful, and he was found fit to stand trial. 
so during the trial more details were revealed regarding the family's experience during his reign of terror. After his murders, Miyazaki had sent letters and packages to the families of his victims, indicating that what he had done. He went as far as to send the remains of Mari to her family, and to later correct a police report that claimed that the remains were not hers. When his letters first started out, they were very short. There would be three-word sentences, things like there are devils around, uh, and then later on he went into greater detail on what he did to who and how he did it, um, explaining that the remains he sent to the family were in fact that family's daughter, who at that time they believed to be missing. So in February 2006, the Supreme Court finalized the death sentence after appeals of the district and high court opinions. So they took the appeals as high as they could, and at every level they said, nope, death penalty, all three times. And Miyazaki was finally hanged in June of 2008. That is the method of execution in Japan, hanging. Take it away, Andre. Well, a literal monster. Uh, one of the articles I read also said like he was caught like because he was like literally trying to like put his camera lens. Take. I'll just let your brain do the work on that one. Yeah. He is almost like the stereotypical weird person. Like your your brain is like stay away from that person and like. Yeah with good reason because like he just hits you all like you look at him even like his eyes like the way you look at him like he looks like i'm looking at his mugshot yeah there's just he's just unsettling dead behind the eyes his his father was so ashamed that like he didn't help him with his like legal like defense at all like money wise and um mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. no yeah. Well, just wait um after he was after all that happened he was found guilty his father killed himself and now, a message from our sponsors. So, like, I mean, and like, obviously, no, like, if I thought my child was guilty of something like that, but like, I don't, if yes. you don't know, I don't know. You know, because like, everybody's yeah. different in so far as how much they be like, believe in their kid. Like, I, you know? If my kid, I think I would believe you up until I can no longer, believe. like, once the evidence was coming out and it's like, there's no, I, there's no way you didn't do that. Yeah, like, I would have to I be. I don't know. It'd be a hard pill to swallow, but I would have to swallow that pill eventually. Yeah. Okay, so like, all right. So like, what are some factors you think contributed to his extreme behavior? Well, one of the things that they said is like, um, he was born prematurely, which is what caused his uh, hand deformity, but also like he had schizophrenia and well, and they say at the time he had multiple personality disorder, but like we all know that the, the science behind DID has is kind of, yeah. yeah. So, but, but that's, see, that's the interesting thing too, is because like a lot of times like people can like claim insanity if they have serious mental illnesses for like committing those kind of crimes. But the court decided that even though he was schizophrenic, supposedly had um, dis disassociative identity disorder, he was still, he knew what he was doing was wrong and was still accountable for the crimes that he he committed oh, yeah. because he he knew what he was doing so i don't know i mean like that isn't that the question like what what causes people like like ted bundy like whoever to, well it's not even snapping like there's clearly something going on brains off yeah yeah I mean, I was reading too that even like so this whole thing obviously brought up a huge discussion on mental health in Japan and uh there's a lot of people in the media who were criticizing the mental health system in Japan for failing to identify and treat this individuals uh, this individual who had these severe psychological disorders and committed these crimes yeah and like also argue how like the stigma 
surrounding mental health in Japan is very difficult and it's hard for people to like a yeah just get help and receive proper treatment because a lot of those things are kind of kept behind closed doors and you deal with it either by yourself or within your family like you don't really go out and ask for like say oh hey I'm this this is going on in my head and I need help because it can be viewed as shame. There's like a I'm sure I don't know like I it's one of those things it's like what nature versus nurture and it's not necessarily like a nurture thing but like socialization because like here's the thing too like are are you more susceptible to developing certain deviant behaviors if you are that thoroughly rejected by your peers? I don't know. I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm just saying like did his fascination or not did his Uh, his isolation contribute to his well not even isolation but like they said that like he was bullied a lot and was rejected i mean obviously he probably had one of those vibes where like make people kind of stay away from him yeah and if 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 that's the case is that the kind of thing that like made him want to prey on children like like somebody who can't defend themselves against him yeah, he, he can't take, take advantage. On, yeah, he can't take on the people who have bullied him, so he's gonna take it out on maybe, like maybe take it out on people who are weaker than him. These people who do these depraved acts and crimes, they probably already have it within them to do that. Mm-hmm. It's like, is that gonna be, is it gonna sit there under the floorboards and fester until like it bubbles out? Or oh. are you gonna seek help? Are there ways for them to seek help and talk about these things? Cause like, even if you're, I was listening to one interview about this, what was he called? He called himself like a virtual pedophile or something like that. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like where like he has the desire, but he knows it's wrong. He doesn't, so he doesn't do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it was, and he he was saying one thing. He, he did an interview with a YouTuber and he was saying to her, he was like if i could go out to therapy and like seek help without feeling like judged by my therapist i would do it but like i feel like if i tell someone this i might just get arrested on the spot like they might flag me or something like that i don't want that to happen yeah. to me and it's like i see what you mean like you want to go seek help yeah, but you don't it's, it's be, like so deeply deeply stigmatized like uh, stigmatized is not a good word because like i mean you don't want it's that's a weird line because yeah like you don't want people who are going to hurt children but like if you have the urge like yeah an urge that you are controlling but like you need help but like you can't get help it's you know, like I, I got i want you to be able to kind of like an ouroboros you know yes. snake it's eating its own weird, tail it's a weird paradox because these people they don't want to come out and say like i have these urges i need help because the public and rightfully so if someone came up to me and told me they're a pedophile I would probably have an adverse reaction to them. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I would probably be like, "Okay, cool, fuck you, get away from me." <laughs> it's a knee-jerk response, but it's like it's a it's it, yeah, it's a weird it's a weird line. Yeah, because like, I want you to get help so you don't hurt anybody, but I also don't want you near me because I don't want you to be near my kids. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen that trailer? It's not trailer. It's a documentary called Pet Up, uh, Pervert Park. No, it's on YouTube. That. It's free. It's like an hour long. It's it's wild. So there's a spot in Florida where, because you know, if you're a convicted sex offender, you can't live within a certain distance between like schools or a park, places like that. So there's one area of Florida, like a trailer park, where it's perfectly out of the way of other like places where kids and families can be. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these pedophiles and child rapists and you know people who are on a sex offender registry live in this park. Deemed, they call it Pervert Park. That's where all these like people live. 
because like it's perfectly away from everybody else they can be there and just like gotta be themselves and uh they do have like programs where people come in and they have therapists they can talk to group therapy and these people are introductory talk about themselves and they're like yeah it's hard because i can't even leave this little trailer park without fearing that i'm just gonna get my ass beat because like you can just google my name and see that i'm a <laughs> i'm this pedophile or yeah. this and, that. and it's like yeah get it like i don't know if, if someone if, if if I went on that Watchdog app and like looked up my neighborhood and I saw a bunch of pedophiles around me, I would probably be very upset too. I probably wouldn't move. I don't, that's why I don't do it. I don't want to look at. But it. it's ev- like they're they're everywhere. Like yeah, like and it's scary. Yeah. But it's like, are they seeking help? Probably not because they can't go anywhere to seek help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what the answer to some of these things are. The case of Satomu Miyazaki is a sobering reminder that the world can be a dark and dangerous place. It's a reminder that evil can lurk in unexpected places, and we should always be vigilant and aware of our surroundings. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's that's the big one too. Don't let your kids walk anywhere alone, especially if they're under the age of like 12. Now, while Miyazaki's crimes were heinous and unforgivable, we can also learn from them and work towards preventing similar tragedies from happening in the future by shining a light on these dark corners of our society and like having these conversations and talking about how we feel about them so we can better understand the human psyche and not like the what's behind the perpetrator's mind but even how we respond to these types of crimes and stuff like that because i feel like if you don't talk about these things that's something that i don't understand too yeah the the more secrecy the more silence the more that we like shut down conversations mm-hmm. about mental health the more this doesn't get addressed. And it's like the thing that kills me that we always talk about like broadly in our society is like, if you don't learn history, you are doomed to repeat it. And we keep Mm -hmm. fucking doing that shit because we keep just, let's just shove this down in a fucking- Call weird and leave it alone. It's like, no, we need to open the bag up. Let's take everything out and let's talk about it. So we can at least feel more comfortable talking about the shit. sit here and say i know all the answers and i'm not gonna sit here and say that like i would always have the best takes but like we can't like get anywhere if we don't like have conversations like yeah yeah, it it just and i mean we have to also be open to being wrong about the things that we think to like figure out like you're you're gonna hear the edited version of this but even when we're recording this (laughs) we critique ourselves ourselves. no one can critique me more than i critique myself <laughs> i'm my own worst enemy yeah yeah so that's you that. have something negative to say to me don't worry i've said it to myself already <laughs> honestly <laughs> in the mirror yeah. yeah yeah so that's the episode i hope you're as frustrated as i <laughs> yeah i'm ready to <laughs> so like we're ready to kick someone in the neck start a fight but uh yeah enjoy the music because i have great taste wherever you're watching listen to us we appreciate you drop us a like subscribe review us whatevs and remember this is from the homies. Mm. Solid. And now, a short commercial break. <laughs>